Hello. Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books and Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest on the program today is Elijah Milgram. Lige is the E.E. Erickson Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of Utah. He works primarily in moral philosophy, with special interests in practical reason. But some of his more recent work has to do with the history of philosophy. Lige's new book is titled John Stuart Mill and the Meaning of Life. It's just been published by Oxford University Press. Listeners are probably aware that the great 19th century philosopher John Stuart Mill had an unusual upbringing under the constant, and we may suppose imposing, oversight of his father. The boy's education was devised to instill in him a fully utilitarian character. Now, as many listeners know, and as we'll be discussing more shortly, the young Mill suffered a serious mental crisis as he began adulthood. Now, an intuitive view of what gives meaning to life has it that lives are meaningful when they manifest a directedness, a project, such that the desperate events in and endeavors add up to one's life. Mill's life certainly was devoted to a project in that sense. And yet Mill's life was, in many respects, unsatisfying, was riven with anxiety and trauma. Does Mill's life provide a test case for this project's view of what meaningful lives are like? Now, in the book, John Stuart Mill and the Meaning of Life, Elijah Milgram weaves together intellectual biography with philosophical analysis, all in the service of what strikes me as a distinctive style of moral philosophizing. So, as usual, there's a lot to talk about. But also, as usual, why don't we begin, as we usually do, with our guest. Hello, Lige. Hi, uh, Bob. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? I'm good. Why don't you start us off uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, okay. Um, well, um, let me give a slightly different characterization of what my sort of main philosophical interests are, uh, which is kind of appropriate for the uh, uh, for the venue. Um, so it's unusual for um, uh, academic uh, philosophers to think of themselves as uh, focused on uh, the meaning of life. As, as their kind of research area. But that's actually what I went into philosophy to think about. It's actually what I went to college to think about. Um, I guess I can, uh, uh, I can describe it this way. Uh, when I was around, uh, I guess I must have been in my very late teens or maybe 20, um, I had, I suppose you could think of it as an existential crisis. Uh, life looked meaningless and the world looked meaningless. And I actually had a regress argument uh, to explain why, not that I knew that phrase at the time, you know, for something to be important or matter, something else has to be important or matter, and then something else has to be important, and eventually you run out. And so I uh, thought, uh, well, you know, either life is meaningless or it's not. If it's not, and I uh, study philosophy and become a philosopher, I might figure out what the meaning of life is. Um, but if not, I wouldn't have wasted my time doing that any more than anything else. So this has really been a focus of mine uh, for from the very beginning uh, of my uh, interest in philosophy. And my other uh, my other uh, 
our research focus is theory of rationality. Uh, you mentioned practical reasoning, and that's one side of it. But, you know, I, I'm also interested in theoretical rationality, thinking about uh, what it is to reason about uh, how the facts stand. And um, these two interests seem to me to, they're, they're not separate or kind of uh, distinct. Uh, they overlap a good deal. I, I, and I kind of expect this will emerge in the conversation. Fabulous. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I came to know your work from the, um, from the first book, actually, from the, the Practical Induction book. Um, and I guess now I can see how the connection to the meaning of life <laughs> uh, might, um, uh, might be evident in some of the, the substantive views that you have in that book. Um, but um, uh, we're here to talk about the newest book, not, uh, not, not the first um, so let's begin um, by talking about um, uh, the genre, let's say, uh, of, of the new book. Um, it's a combination of intellectual biography and philosophical argument. Um, and as I was saying at the introduction, it uses Mill's life as a kind of test case for um, that particular sort of projects-based uh, um, conception of what gives a life meaning. Um, so, you know, I, I suspect that many listeners are familiar in broad strokes with uh, some of the details um, about Mill's life, uh, but maybe we should begin there. Um, can you tell us a bit about why um, Mill's life might be used as a test case in this way or as, a, uh, as, as, as an exhibit uh, in this way? Um, it might be good just to refresh uh, uh, our memories uh, from having read uh, the, the autobiography probably uh, too many years ago. Uh, sure thing. So, you know, I first encountered Mill the way uh, many philosophers do uh, as a moral philosopher. You know, you read utilitarianism and maybe you read uh, on liberty, and, right? Um, but just as far as philosophy goes, uh, you know, Mill is a systematic philosopher. Uh, he has views, it's very old school, right? He has right. views about just about every philosophical problem space. Um, and the views all fit together there, right? Uh, uh, an argument for one position will uh, uh, provide the premise for a position on what seems like a completely different subject matter. Uh, so he's a, a, he's a comprehensive philosopher. The, the, the book he was most known for in his, uh, as a philosopher in his, his, his own life is The System of Logic, which is the 19th century's uh, most important English language book on logic and uh, metaphysics and epistemology and philosophy of science. It's a fascinating read. It's a, it's a wonderful book. But he wasn't just a philosopher, I found. So I guess economics is a, uh, an anachronistic category to apply. Back then, the predecessor uh, field is political economy, but Mill was a theorist of political economy. He wrote a, uh, a two-volume econ textbook, The Principles of Political Economy, which was widely read and very influential. Um, he was a colonial administrator. Um, he worked for the British East India Company, the entity that ran India on behalf of the British government uh, for most of his adult life. And I should say that that meant that he had uh, experience. He's, he's the rare case of a political philosopher who actually has experience managing a country, being involved <laughs> in the management of a country. Uh, that's, that's, that's a very unusual thing. But what wraps all of this together and is the maybe the biggest picture description is he's he's a political activist first and foremost. Um, 
in a, uh, a movement which belongs to a very narrow radical segment of um, uh, a British politics at the time. Um, the early version of this movement was called, they were called the philosophic radicals. Uh, the, the label utilitarianism was eventually invented by Mill himself to apply to the ideas that organized this movement. And um, so working, you mentioned Mill's um, uh, childhood, uh, working your way back from this the bulk of the life, the center of the life. Um, so um, Mill's father, uh, James Mill, um, was a very close associate and good friend of Jeremy Bentham, who is sort of the uh, founding figure. We think of him as the founding figure of utilitarianism. Um, and the two of them were, you know, two of the central figures of this very, very small group of uh, extremely radical political reformers. And um, it's probably over-reading it uh, or kind of over It's probably wrong to say that Mill, that, that James Mill raised his son to have the career trajectory he ended up having. Uh, there were, I think, a great deal of things that would have surprised the older generation. But it's not over-reading it to say that he raised his son to be the spearhead activist in this tiny movement with plans to change, enormously successful plans in the end, to change the world. And um, that had two sides to it. So uh, one side, uh, uh, which you gestured at, I think a lot of people know about, um, it's uh, Mill's uh, fast-forward education. So he was homeschooled. He never went to uh, school or to college or university. Um, and while he was very young, his father worked at home on a social history of India. And I guess the picture you should have is, we can imagine like a table, a large table. And at one end is uh, James Mill working on his history. And at the other end is little John Stewart doing his homework under the immediate direct supervision of his father. And people know that Usually what they remember is his father started him reading ancient Greek at age three. And I think it was Latin at five. I can't quite remember. Right? Yeah, something like that. Right? <laughs> something like that. And by yeah. the time he was uh, in his mid-teens, although he had never been to school, it was as though he had finished several advanced degrees. Um, but there's sort of a misimpression that people get. I mean, they just think, oh, he, he memorized a lot of material. Actually, uh, it's more interesting than that. His father turned him into a research assistant uh, while he was still a child. Hmm. Um, and so he was getting the kind of training that the American higher education system tells us we give to our graduate students. Um, okay, that's one side of his upbringing. But here's the other am I, side. Can, can, am I right? Can I ask one quick question? Just, I remember yeah. reading, um, wasn't he also tasked with teaching siblings? He was. And that uh, didn't work out so well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, here's, here's why. I mean, there was nothing wrong with the siblings, but they didn't turn out to be the same kind of product as him, right. as John Stuart Mill. Um, the idea was that, so at the time, one of the planks in the radical reform agenda was uh, education for everybody, public education. And there simply weren't enough teachers to go around. This was the problem that gave rise to what used to be called normal schools. Right, teacher training schools. Hmm. Um, and the Bentham and James Mill had a great idea 
instead of if, if there's a shortage of trained teachers, you just have the older kids teach the younger kids. It doesn't work. That doesn't work so well. Okay, but now here's the other side of that upbringing. So James Mill was like his son. He was many sided. So he wasn't just somebody with interest in India, someone who actually went on to work at the British East India Company himself also as a senior administrator. Um, and he wasn't just a political activist. He, um, uh, he was also a psychologist. Hmm. In fact, he wrote a book, a psych textbook is a good way to think of it, called The Analysis of the Phenomena of the Human Mind. This is actually very important for understanding what these guys were doing. Uh, here's a little bit of positioning. James Mill and also John Stuart Mill are British empiricists. They're in the philosophical tradition of Locke and Berkeley and Hume, and also they have a successor, Alexander Bain, who we tend not to read much anymore. Um, and British empiricism is a philosophical research program built around a psychological theory, or actually two of them, the theory of ideas and associationism. And analysis, that, that book, it lays out the, the associationist psychology, and it's fascinating to read this book Thinking of it as, you ask yourself, what would a child rearing be like if it was done by somebody who believed what's in this book? The book was actually written after John Stuart Mill's early childhood. And in fact, he became a research assistant uh, for part of the book. Um, <laughs> but um, you can read it as the child rearing manual for little John Stuart Mill. And I suppose I should put a little bit of the theory in place so you see what this is. Associationism is, you can see it as a kind of an ancestor of two more, more recent and familiar theories. One is Skinner-style behaviorism, you know, but where, um, so you're doing conditioning, but where Skinner's behaviorism is between stuff that is on the outside, a stimulus and a res behavioral response. The associationists are trying to condition uh, connections between ideas within the mind. Right. So if you have two ideas, A and B, conditioning is mostly done by repetition. You think... First A, then B, A, then B, A, then B. And after a while, an association is formed between them. And when you think of A, your mind is carried along to think of B. And also pleasure and pain flow across these associative links. And so you think of the mind as a network of these ideas connected by these associations. Now, this will remind you of modern machine learning AI, right? Connectionism. Mm -hmm. It's different in the following respect. So you're training the neural net, right? But uh, nowadays, the nodes in the neural net, they don't have contents themselves. Representation is distributed over the network. Whereas the associationists thought of um, the network they were training, the nodes in the network were ideas that had contents locally. An idea was an idea about something or of something. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to imagine James Mill is trying to condition his child to being first a utilitarian activist, a philosophic radical, and he was successful, absolutely. Um, Mill stayed utilitarian until he died, and also instilling remarkable work habits. I mean, um, nowadays there's a, you know, collected works of John Stuart Mill, um, and it's 30-odd volumes, and those volumes are tomes. You can use them as doorstops. And Mill wrote all of this in mostly his spare time, because remember, he had a day job at the British East India Company. This is somebody who had genuinely remarkable work habits. Okay.
<laughs> um, so, but there's a crisis, right? Um, yes. Uh, so, um, so you're, you're, you're kind of thinking, was the conditioning success really successful if there was the, me- the mental crisis? <laughs> right. Uh, let me introduce the mental crisis and, um, um, and say just a little bit about it. So our, our, so our audience knows what, uh, what it is. Uh, I mean, it's odd. There's this episode in somebody's life, a kind of emotional collapse, which is so famous that anyway, within in certain circles, it has its very own name, Mill's mental crisis. Um, and the, uh, the right way to say this, uh, to talk about this is that, uh, Mill, when he was around age 20, he, emotionally disinvested in the life project that he had been bequeathed and that he had enthusiastically signed on to. And um, uh, Mill tried to be self-aware about this. He uh, has also inherited the psychological theory. And so he tries to explain to himself uh, how it was that he disinvested. Um, But he got himself back on track. And um, and he did stay utilitarian until the day of his death. I think we should probably uh, put a few more pieces on the plate before I try to explain how how I think that happened. However, sure. Um, uh, well, why don't we on the way there? Um, so we've got this picture of um, John Stuart Mill from the time he's very young, sort of um, uh, being. Uh, the right word trained um uh sort of his his childhood has been planned out let's just say that um uh by his father according to certain moral and psychological views um maybe you can tell us a little bit about um the view of life's meaning uh that you think mill's life is a test case for uh okay yeah so, um, um, this is actually what I think of as both the default view of meaningfulness in life or the meaning of life within analytic philosophy, and um, also um, uh, out in the real world. But I'll kind of I'll try to characterize it at two different level of levels of abstraction. So the idea is that. Um, what makes your life meaningful are projects. And if you have one big project sitting squarely in the middle of and covering most of your life, that's the meaning of your life. If you look at, so it's rare that analytic philosophers talk about the meaning of life, but when they do, uh, the notion of projects comes up early and often. You see it in Bernard Williams and Susan Wolf has a book, uh, right? And, um, but, uh, you also, so I'll explain in a moment what I sort of mean formally by a project, but it'll turn out that the kind of paradigm case of a project is a career. And I've taught a class called The Meaning of Life on and off for many years. And my experience is that among the secular students, of uh, the majority view of the meaning of life is the students take it for granted that the meaning of their life is going to be their career. So... This is the live default view. Um, now, let me step back a second to 
uh, say why I think the view is, it's not just that people happen to have it. So again, most people, most philosophers are not, are not aware that the meaning of life is a topic with a state of play in our field. Um, it's Since not a lot of people participate in the discussion, the, the, the state of play moves forward very slowly. Um, and so the uh, uh, it's defined by actually a really beautiful paper from about half a century ago uh, uh, by David Wiggins called uh, Truth, Invention, and the Meaning of Life. It's a really uh, wonderful, refined, delicate paper with an argument that sort of walks sideways like a crab. <laughs> and when he uh, gets to the end of his paper, having disposed of the forms of nihilism that he he thinks have been the most threatening, for example, that you know maybe values aren't real and so life is meaningless, right? Um, he uh, ends up thinking, look, the problem that's left over is that there are things that are important to you and that matter to you and that are valuable in your life, but they don't fit together in a way that lets them add up to a life. And so the proposal is your life is meaningful when um, when you try to explain why something is important or matters to you, in, uh, something in your life, your explanation will draw in all the other things that are important or matter to you. So it's a coherence condition and actually very the way he characterizes it, it's a very strong coherence condition. And since that is the state of play, the discussion really has not moved on since this paper, and subsequent discussion even hasn't properly assimilated Wiggins' own moves. Um, and so um, um, I think the right thing to do is to uh, uh, investigate this proposal head on. Now, how does one do this? And that's what I propose to do in this book. Hmm. Um, so how do you do this? Well, my own view is you want to make uh, philosophical views as concrete as possible so you can see what's really going on. And if it's the meaning of life, you should be looking at lives. What kind of life? Well, if you think about the Wiggins suggestion, the proposal, what that comes to in practice will depend on what those justifications and explanations that link together one important thing in a life with another. So it depends on your theory of practical rationality or your theory of practical reasoning. And um, for us philosophers, the simplest view to use, the most straightforward view to use, is uh, uh, the idea that all practical justifications means end. Uh, so instrumentalism about practical reasoning, if that's a phrase that uh, uh, is a useful bookmark for you. Um, and when you plug that view of justification into the Wiggins coherence requirement, what you get is the life as a project. Everything fits together but fits together instrumentally. You do this in order to advance the project to its next stage, and the next stage is there to advance the project to the stage after that. One more qualification, just to have the, the view formally in place. Mm -hmm. You might think, oh, okay, this means that you're going to be pursuing an end, a goal, right, which dominates your life. That actually doesn't square well with the Wiggins proposal because then that goal or end would be a sort of dangler. It itself would not have the right kind of explanation for what it's doing there. Um, and also, there's an earlier discussion by some by Richard Taylor, um, uh, who points out that uh, who, he pointed out long ago that if you build your life around a goal, it's hard to size the goal right. If it's too ambitious, uh, you're not going to get it done before you die, and then your life is guaranteed to be a failure. And if it's not ambitious enough, you'll be done too soon. So 
the solution, this is how I mean projects, it's a solution to this problem as well. Um, a project is instrumentally structured. All the connections are means end, but it's open-ended forward. Mm-hmm. And um, Mill's utilitarian project, that is the uh, inherited political program of a political party whose slogan was the greatest good of the greatest number, is obviously open-ended this way. There's always more things you can do to promote the greatest good of the greatest number. So this is the view that I'm using Mill's life to investigate, and Mill is, he seems to me to be really a perfect fit for it. Right, great. Um, so uh, just to put the, 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 the large pieces together, um, so Mill's life is itself a good um, example, or we might say is the manifestation of uh, this um, Wiggins-Williams-style view of uh, what gives lives meaning. Um, and I guess now uh, the question is, um, you know, <laughs> whether Mill, having um, having had a life that manifests this particular view of what gives a life meaning, well, what we want to say in assessment of that life. Is that how the, the book proceeds? Um, actually, no. So uh, uh, the uh, the um, it's the, let me make a point about methodology. Good. So we analytic philosophers are trained to um, to a method in moral philosophy, but it's not really just in moral philosophy. You see it. It's a, the moral philosophy is a, uh, techniques are a special case of the method we're trained to apply across the board, where you uh, present. In this case, uh, somebody's life, or you uh, present a, a consequence of a theory, say, just to be very kind of toy and crude, um, sometimes in a classroom, uh, the teacher will point out that um, it looks like on the utilitarian view, you should be kidnapping uh, pedestrians off the street and slicing them up for transplant organs. And then you're supposed to stand back and assess. You're supposed to have a response to it. Is this good? Is it bad? Now, uh, that's not what I'm doing in this book, not at all. And there are several reasons for this. Um, Well, first, let me say a little bit more about Mill because it's a hostile way to approach Mill. Okay. Mill was raised into a radical political movement. Um, This uh, movement had many different planks, but they more or less, the platform had many different planks, but these planks shared one characteristic, they were all lunatic fringe. I mean, they sound tame to us now, but votes for everyone? Lunatic fringe. Unrestricted freedom of speech? Lunatic fringe. Uh, Public education? Education for everyone? For free or anyway subsidized by the government? Lunatic fringe. Uh, They didn't advance this early in the uh, history of the... uh, uh, of, the, of the movement, but it kind of came on board later. Equal rights for women in 1830 or 1840, that was just insane, right? So you don't want to appeal to people's responses to their intuitions uh, as a basis for assessment if you have, um, um, if you have views. So people, are, people respond favorably basically to what they're used to. Intuition endorses whatever it is you're used to. And Mill was quite aware of this, and so his view was, this is not the way you do moral philosophy. You don't, you don't imagine, stand back, and assess. And mm-hmm. in fact, uh, let me see. This will be useful. So 
um, you know, Mill had a sort of teenage epiphany. And let me read you a little bit of it. He describes it in his autobiography, and some of the listeners may even remember it. Okay. Okay. This is in, um, I guess, the third chapter. My previous education had been, in a certain sense, already a course of Benthamism. The Benthamic standard of the greatest happiness was that which I had always been taught to apply. Yet, in the first pages of Bentham, it burst upon me with all the force of novelty. He's reading uh, a book that was uh, edited into French by a a friend of Bentham's. Um, What thus impressed me was the chapter in which Bentham passed judgment on the common modes of reasoning and morals and legislation, deduced from phrases like law of nature, right reason, the moral sense, natural rectitude, and the like, and characterized them as dogmatism in disguise, imposing its sentiments upon others under cover of sounding expressions which convey no reason for the sentiment, but it set up the sentiment as its own reason. It had not struck me before that Bentham's principle, the principle of utility, put an end to all this. The feeling rushed upon me that all previous moralists were superseded, and that here indeed was the commencement of a new era in thought. Now he goes on, And we'll have a use for this. I'm skipping a bit. I felt taken up to an eminence from which I could survey a vast mental domain and see stretching out into the distance intellectual results beyond all computation. Sounds like Kant, right? I'm sublime. As I proceeded farther, there seemed to be added to this intellectual clearness the most inspiring prospects of practical improvement in human affairs. Skipping a bit. At every page, he seemed to open a clearer and broader conception of what human opinions and institutions ought to be, how they might be made what they ought to be, and how far removed from what they, they now are. When I laid down the last volume of the Trite, I'd become a different being. The principle of utility, understood as Bentham understood it, and applied in the manner in which he applied it through these three volumes, fell exactly into its place as the keystone which held together the detached and fragmentary component parts of my knowledge and beliefs. Um, it gave unity to my conceptions of things. I now had opinions, a creed, a doctrine, a philosophy. Um, in one of the best senses of the word, a religion, the inculcation and diffusion of which could be made the principal outward purpose of a life. So this is the moment where Bill realizes what the meaning of his life is. Hmm. And he wraps up by saying, the vista of improvement which he did open was sufficiently large and brilliant to light up my life as well as to give a de- definite shape to my aspirations. Now notice that the first part of this was, Ruling out appeals to intuition in moral philosophy. Mm-hmm. And this here's a reason why Mill is of interest to us generally nowadays that I think is insufficiently appreciated. You know, experimental philosophers have kind of reinvented a wheel, um, uh, Mill's wheel, uh, the idea that intuitions, they take a psychological explanation. And so you don't learn anything from them. That's the early stuff by, you know, Stitch and Nichols and so on. Um, but there's been a lot of, resistance to uh, in the field to you know learning the methodological lesson from that which is that you have to philosophize without intuitions people say what else could you do right you have to start somewhere right um mill devoted a large part of his efforts uh, to building a systematic philosophy whose objective was you don't appeal to intuition anywhere now maybe it worked maybe it didn't but he did logic and philosophy of science and moral philosophy and political philosophy, all attempting to avoid appeal. This method, we present the thing that we're imagining, we imagine something, and then we have a reaction to it, which is our assessment. So anyway, I don't want to do that in this book. Um, the life is going to be used, is used as an argument, hmm. but not an argument 
of the form, we present the life, and now we decide if it's a good or a bad idea. Well, let me ask this then. Uh, so I take it then that um, what's crucial to this um, style of argumentation um, is uh, that we come to understand um, or we, we develop a view, of, 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 of we theorize um, Mill's crisis, um, that um, this pivotal moment uh, early in his life that uh, leads to um, uh, many of the uh, um, alterations that he's famous for, uh, alterations of the, util- the Benthamite utilitarian project that he's famous for. Um, now you, you, you've got a view uh, in the book of the sort of source or the genesis of Mill's crisis that has to do um, with a realization that um, – with a realization about Benthamism, um, uh, both that it was uh, philosophically uh, left something to be desired, so to speak, um, but that it was also, uh, you think, uh, from Mill's perspective, something that s- seemed to him to grow unworthy of his allegiance. Um, can you tell us a bit about about that? Um, okay. Uh, let me recast the, the, the question a little bit. Sure. Um, um, because the unworthiness... Uh, well, okay. So... Um, my own, there's three things going on here. There's a problem, which is a personal problem for Mill. There's a political problem for Mill. And then there's a kind of methodological complication for us, the, the readers, and uh, in particular because of the way, what I want to get out of examining uh, Mill's life. So um, let me quickly fill in how uh, it seems to me like the... Uh, mental crisis happened. Um, I read you a little bit of an epif- Mill's epiphany uh, uh, when he decides this is the meaning of my life, Benthamism. And, and that happens when he's about 16. Um, when he's 18 or so, uh, Bentham asks him to edit a, a huge pile of manuscript. Bentham did this a lot. Um, he would write stuff, but then the sort of final product was you know, polished up and put together by somebody else. Um, he, Bentham asked uh, the young John Stuart Mill um, to turn a huge pile of manuscripts having to do with what the reforming procedures for collecting evidence in kind of courtrooms and things like that um, into something into something publishable. Hmm. And um, Mill's response to being faced with Bentham's own handwriting in large quantities was dismay. And I understand this dismay completely. I mean, it has different aspects to it. Um, um, if you read, I mean, you can even see this in the finished product, the five volumes of the Rationale of Judicial, Judicial Evidence, which John Stuart Mill finished off in a year, actually, amazingly. Um, but you can also, you know, you can go to the archives and you can see Bentham's own handwriting for yourself. It's like suddenly you're face-to-face with somebody who's obsessive, and kind of a crank, and um, 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 and the uh, it suddenly becomes very apparent um, 
how unsystematic this is, how little the principle of utility, which is supposed to be the motivator, um, is actually underwriting the particular proposals. Um, But now, Mill never thinks that it's unworthy in this sense, that Bentham has got it wrong. But Mill had a wonderful education. And and a philosophical education of this kind gives you taste, in, in particular, taste and argumentation. And Bentham comes across as crude and inept and childish. Mill actually said later on in an essay on Bentham um, that he was um, uh, he was essentially a boy. He had never Bentham never grew up, mm-hmm. um, and it was very hard to take it seriously in the way that would support a commitment uh, committing one's life to this project. Now, here's one thing I want to register now. The Epiphany that I read you a little bit snippets out of, that's an aesthetic response. It's like the Kantian sublime. When Mm -hmm. Mill owns the project, that's an aesthetic response. And when he disinvests in it, the dismay, that's an aesthetic response. You know, philosophers, us analytic philosophers, we tend to think of aesthetics as a kind of pedo that doesn't have anything to do with real philosophy. Uh, You know, not the core stuff, not the metaphysics and not the epistemology, not even the moral philosophy. Somehow we tolerate aesthetics being housed in philosophy departments for historical reasons. As you can <laughs> see, I think that's terribly wrong. Aesthetics is, you, you can't do the other stuff without having worked out using aesthetics. And when you work on Mill's life, you see that. Okay, but now from Mill's point of view, there was the personal, he could have just walked away. But the Well, personal, could he have? <laughs> he couldn't have, right? Somebody could have. <laughs> right, good. Whether he could have. <laughs> uh, so he decided, so the personal problem was, and he devoted much of his life to it, to fix the quality problem, the aesthetics of the project he was invested in, um, to make it beautiful and wonderful so that you really could be emotionally committed to it. And that's why utilitarianism and all the stuff we inherit from Mill, why we still teach it in intro classes and why it's so influential and why the institutions he designed uh, are much of the shape of our lives. Um, because Mill was trying to make it worth being committed to. That's the personal aspect. The political aspect aspect of the problem. So Mill inherits a the platform of a political party. And if you look at most political parties, you know, they have all kinds of planks in their platform. They get there somehow, right? They they accrete, they look reasonable to the people who are in, in the movement. So we remember um you know, uh, on liberty and uh, uh, and subjection of women. But, you know, there were also things like repealing the corn laws, you know, getting rid of grain tariffs. Hmm. Um, and uh, Mill, the political problem was to produce an integrated program with a cohesive underlying ideology that made it all fit together and hang together. And he took that on too. Uh, it's, 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 the, the resolution of the personal problem is also the resolution of this political problem. And here's why this makes, this is a methodological complication for us. So, okay, if you're an analytic historian of philosophy, your training is, what you're supposed to be doing is figuring out what the dead guy thought, what the text really says. And when you do that, you're done. However, look, remember how we picked Mill out. Um, This is somebody whose life is organized on the basis of this view that all justifications are only means end. That's why his life is organized into a project. If there were other kinds of justifications he recognized, 
his life would look would incorporate them and wouldn't suit our it wouldn't be our test case. Um, and Mill, in fact, he he himself officially endorses uh, instrumentalism and he inherits it from his father, who also officially endorses it. But we just noticed that the big turning points in his life are aesthetic responses. Um, this means that Mill, like anybody who has a project life, won't be equipped to understand some of the reasons that are moving him. And he will himself misdiagnose and misunderstand those turning points. Um, so it's, um, it's great to figure out what Mill thought his mental crisis was about. In fact, there's a wonderful treatment of this in a book by Candace Vogler at Chicago um, that, that I think absolutely correctly reconstructs what Mill thought his mental crisis had been. But we can't stop there. We want to understand how project lives play out. And it's not necessarily a part of a project life. In fact, we're seeing that probably it's built into project lives that they have certain kinds of blind spots. And so we have to go further. This is all incredibly, <laughs> incredibly interesting. Um, so uh, the um, your account of the crisis then um, has to do with um, he's moved by this sort of um, uh, you call an aesthetic you call it an aesthetic response. It's a sort of a, ver- you know, a realization that um, uh, Bentham is not. Um, uh, the, the Bentham view is is in some respects um, uh, off-putting, um, and uh, he sets Mill, that is John Stuart Mill, sets uh, sets his uh, his sights on sort of reforming uh, the the project so that it's um, uh, more worthy of his allegiance. Let's say, um, and this leads you to. Um, uh, take up a uh, what strikes me as a, a really interesting, intriguing sort of lens through which to interpret some of the um, more famous um, philosophical maneuvers that uh, that that when we teach male, we emphasize the sort of higher uh, higher and lower pleasures distinction um, and uh, some of the uh, stuff in 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 on liberty that um, at the end of the day on a you know, on a standard sort of textbooky kind of intro to philosophy presentation, uh, looks like um, uh, the, the stuff on liberty, especially the the, uh, the emphasis on on individual liberty, looks like it's hard to square with uh, some of the commitments of utilitarianism. Um, but um, uh, you, you reshift the focus in thinking through some of these more famous Millian themes. Um, by uh, emphasizing uh, Mill's overriding concern, as you see it, with what you call um, moral freedom, which is a uh, Mill's way of understanding the real significance of um, basically the free will debate. Is this right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay, let me try and talk my way through this. Um, okay. I want to reframe just a little bit because the sure. way you pose the question, it has a, I don't know, uh, there are disciplinary biases that um, we kind of need to overcome or get past. So um, the way we tend to see and teach, I mean, Mill now, there are these little books that are in different fields. So utilitarianism is the moral philosophy and it's, uh, we teach it in the intro to moral philosophy class maybe. And on liberty is political philosophy. So it gets taught in a political philosophy class. And I don't know, subjection of women is maybe sort of, 
maybe we have a gender studies department and we, you know, they teach it over there and um, uh, like that. And I guess the representative government essay, right, I suppose philosophers aren't interested, but, you know, a political theory class in a political science department would teach that. And um, people try to assess these views independently in the way that I was complaining about earlier. They kind of uh, try to look at the view on its own and have intuitions about it. Um, and also, um, they then think, okay, how do these different things, how do we render them consistent? They seem to say different things. So remember, Mill is assembling an integrated, unified uh, platform and ideology. Utilitarianism isn't the one thing in um, the book that's taught in the moral philosophy class, the principle of utility. It's a package, a systematically integrated package where every part is tailored to belong in the package. And of course, the principle of utility is supposed to be the capstone or the keystone that ties everything together. Um, but it's tailored to do that. Let me explain a little bit how Mill re-understood the principle of utility. And that will take us through the higher and lower pleasures and to moral freedom. So remember, Bentham thought of the principle of utility as being about a sensation pleasure, which would have struck the young male as incredibly crude and raw and philosophically inept. Um, um, I mean, if you do work on pleasure, um, the first thing that you realize, uh, um, I mean, philosopher after philosopher, it's the first move you make, you realize it can't be a sensation. It's philosophically inept to go at it that way. Um, so Mill shifts, he keeps all the words, he keeps the principle of utility, um, but in the, we'll do it in three passes. First, utility becomes not about a sensation of pleasure and a sensation of pain. Um, it becomes about people getting what they want. Now, that's still on its own, not yet grown up. Uh, John Dewey remarks somewhere that um, it's only a child who thinks that, I want it, is a compelling reason. <laughs> uh, but then, uh, next lap, um, Mill um, 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 Mill uh, reconstrues people getting what they want as people who know what's up or what's what getting what they want. You can think of this as the IMDB or uh, Rotten Tomatoes theory of uh, uh, of, of reasons when you're about to see a movie, right? Maybe you think you want to see the movie, but you check Rotten Tomatoes first and see what other people have already seen the movie, what they think. Right. Right. And this makes it already somewhat more grown up. It's not about what you naively already want. And this allows Mill to build into utility. Well, first the higher and lower pleasures. So it will, Mill thinks it will turn out, and I'll explain why in a second, how you have to think about why, um, that people who know what's what, um, there are some things, some goods, Mill says some pleasures, that's his way of talking about goods generally, um, that you just don't trade away. You don't trade them off for anything else. Just you, you don't, right? Um, uh, and these are the higher pleasures. Now, um, Now, when you look at, we have a journal, Utilitas, right, which is kind of the venue for people who want to talk about utilitarianism and Bentham and Mill and so on. 
Um, if you look kind of around in that journal, you'll find people talking about, they try to characterize this sort of, I guess you could say mathematically. Um, right. A higher pleasure is infinitely more valuable than a lower pleasure. That's anachronism, and it's really bad anachronism. I mean, just, you know, we're very comfortable with talk of infinities now, but, you know, that's because we've assimilated Gero Cantor. In the mid-19th century, nobody's comfortable, right? Um, no, in Mill, remember, it's British empiricism. It's philosophy built around a psychological theory. Um, all the work gets done, most of the work gets done, not all of it, by psychological implementation. Um, and I have a recommendation for people who are readers of Mill and want to be sort of serious about it. If you are looking at the little books, you know, utilitarianism or, or liberty or subjection or whatever, and there are lots of arguments, but often the arguments seem to be missing a piece. You kind of go, what does this mean? Why does Mill think it follows? If you look around, you can read the system of logic and also the analysis of the phenomena of the human mind. Mill uh, ended up editing a second edition of his father's book. He added footnotes. He also got three other people to add footnotes. You have to make sure you know whose footnote you're reading. Um, and these footnotes are sometimes 20 pages long. And the rule of thumb is if there's a missing piece in the argument, hunt around in the system and the analysis, and almost always, you'll find the missing piece. In this case, in higher and lower pleasures, the missing piece is, the, is in the analysis. Mill has an explanation for why... This refusal, why, how, how people will get conditioned into refusing to trade off certain goods at all. Um, and the model for this, the kind of, um, the, the, these aren't the only higher pleasures, but the model for this is um, something that's a generic means. Um, Mill's own model for this, his concrete model is actually misers, which he discusses again and again and again. Right. Um, a, uh, a miser is someone who treats money as a higher pleasure. He won't give up any money, any of the money for anything he could buy with it. Um, and here's how this is supposed to happen. The idea of the generic means is associated with ideas of the many, many things you want that you could get with it. And pleasure travels up those associative links and is lodged at the idea of the generic means, but it's traveling up from all the links. So there's much more... Right, the activation level, if you wanted to talk about it in the, the kind of modern connectionist way, is much higher at this node than any of the nodes it's connected to. And so now uh, you have somebody who won't trade off the generic means for any of the things he could get with it. Now, Mill thinks that misers are making a mistake. Most of us aren't misers. That's why we're not mostly conditioned into it, because money gets used up. It runs out. You buy one thing and you mm -hmm. can't buy the other ones. But the things that Mill actually, okay, when people present higher and lower pleasures in a classroom or they just read Mill casually, it's too easy to come away with the impression that a higher pleasure is a culture snob pleasure. I don't know, maybe right. it's great literature or classical music or something like that. And maybe Mill left it open that these things are higher pleasures. The things that he argues are higher pleasures, that people who know what's what are not going to trade away any of, are things like liberty and justice. And um, I mean, here's how you can see why you can see this makes sense. Um, unlike money, when you exercise your liberty by doing something you uh, decide to do, um, your liberty is still there. You haven't used it up. You can now exercise it again. If you exercise, you know, social well justice, right? Mill thinks of it as kind of security in your uh, expectations of society. Um, uh, for example, uh, it's exercised by other people don't get to steal your car. Well, mm. once it's exercised, 
you haven't used it up. Tomorrow they also aren't allowed to steal your car. Um, so you have to watch. Now, it's not as though these things are other ideas about that Mill has in political philosophy that have to be somehow squared with utility. Mill is spelling out what utility involves. This is the conception of utility. It includes utility is developed to be this grown-up thing that you have to take seriously because part of utility is justice and liberty, which you're not going to trade off for anything, and also moral freedom. So let me get back to that. Sure. The other higher pleasure that plays a, a, a remarkably central role in his view um, is free will. Um, it's actually amazing to me that, you know, nowadays there are philosophers who uh, they just they put down freedom of the will as their AOS, their area of specialization on their CV. And when I talk to people like that, I have yet to run into one who so much as knows that Mill had not just one, but two remarkably ingenious, distinct treatments of free will. And right now, the one that's of interest to us, I guess, is the second one. Um, so uh, one version of free will is a configuration of your personality um, in which there's no, well, let me say it this way. For any motivation you have, um, you have available to you other motivations that you could muster to trump that one. So you're not controlled solely by one single motivation. It's the opposite of monomania. Um, and um, Mill thinks, first of all, if you know what's what, you just won't trade it away. It's a higher pleasure uh, in his, this technical sense. Um, it suddenly becomes clear when you kind of see the role that it plays in, um, 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 in his uh, view of his own life and also in his... his uh, um, his uh, political philosophy um, that Mill's addressing a personal problem. I mean, we can, we can say it this way. Why would somebody be so, you should suspect when somebody is so preoccupied with free will that he produces two theories of it, um, that he feels trapped. And in the case of somebody with a life project like Mill's, uh, uh, you should suspect that he feels trapped in his own life project. He's not free to do what he decides to do. But also, you know, Mill's institutional design, d designs um, of, you know, representative government and uh, 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 freedom of speech as we more or less accept it now, and all these things that are done deals and are the building blocks of a modern democratic state. Um, and we forget why Mill thought the, the, uh, they had to be designed this way. Um, Mill, in his own case, uh, was trying to get his own free will back mm. over the course of his life. And he was designing institutions um, whose primary objective was to produce people who lived inside them whose wills were free. These institutions are meant to produce free will. Got it. Um, am I quick? Am, am I right that the that on liberty begins with a sentence about free will? It does, and it actually says, this is, I think... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. It's yeah. not about this. Right? Yeah, yeah. He says, he says, but here's the thing he says it's not about. Um, 
It's the so, doctrine of necessity, the right? The doctrine of necessity. The doctrine of necessity is the subject of his first treatment of free will, not moral freedom. Um, this right. is the, uh, the doctrine of necessity is what we nowadays call determinism, right? And Mill has a kind of ground-clearing treatment, which again is fascinating because of the way it connects different views in surprising ways to produce the, a, res- a, a response to the problem of determinism that you would never have imagined. <laughs> Um, um, and when he says it's not about determinism, uh, that's true, but mm. it's misleading because it is about moral freedom. Right, right. Um, so, here's a way to, here's a way to, well, uh, uh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to, um, I wanted to make sure, um, you know, you've been really generous with your, generous with your time and it's, uh, it's been wonderful talking about the, the book, which I have to say is, is, is really, really fascinating. Um, but I wanted to, um, to make sure that, um, we, we, we had a chance, uh, before wrapping up, uh, to sort of, uh, you know, to sort of return to the, to the big picture, right? The book is, um, it's in part intellectual biography. It's in part mill interpretation of a scholar, you know, very uh, high grade scholarly kind. Um, but um, this is a way of treating Mill's life as a kind of argument, as you said earlier. Um, uh, and in a way, you're employing um, a kind of method of argumentation that is um, unfamiliar, uh, it, it seems to me. Um, so um, maybe we can end with uh, so the what does Mill's life teach us about the meanings? Uh, what does Mill's life teach us about what gives life meaning? Well, I'll is that a fair address, question? It is a fair question, but I'll try to uh, I'll try to address the methodological question that you sort of started with. Also, okay, um, good. So, um, um, so Mill's life turns out to be a train wreck, um, right. and. This doesn't show that the project view of the meaning of life, it's not that it's, it's not that it's a, it's a bad thing or he had a difficult life. That's not the, right. Um, the way the argument is supposed to develop is that it shows that this view is not in fact available. It's off the table. Um, you can't actually have a life like this. Um, and um, when you see, and it's not just that it's projects, uh, what turns out to get, be the source of the problem is Wiggins's original coherence requirement on a life adding up and being tightly wired. And right. so um, um, now uh, I want to say just a, a little bit about why I think we need to do it this way. Um, uh, so Again, we're trained, we analytic philosophers, and especially analytic moral philosophers, we're trained to um, uh, do something that looks a lot like what used to be called conceptual analysis. Right? You, um, uh, you imagine something, uh, you stand back and you have a response to it, and then you sort of contour your theory around these responses, these intuitions. Right. Now, whatever you think generally, I mean, Mill doesn't like this approach at all, we remarked, but whatever you think of this generally, it only works when you have, it recovers stuff that you already think, right? You learn what your concepts, how they're shaped. But the meaning of life, but the meaning of life, that's not a concept that has a lot of shape to it. There's nothing to recover. 
Um, you know, other concepts, maybe knowledge is like this. We exercise them all the time. They're worked out, right? Um, um, I mean, the phrase itself, like free will, the phrase, the meaning of life, it's sort of a nonsense phrase, right? You have to make it mean something. And, um, uh, and conceptual analysis and the techniques that are derived from it, that just won't do. And so when we're thinking about lives, we have to ask ourselves, um, given what we learn, what's the, um, what is there to make a notion like the meaning of life mean that will be useful to us when we're thinking about what we're trying to think about? And for that, I think, um, treating lives as arguments, right? this is my interest in practical rationality. We have to, in theory, theory of rationality, we have to be looking for new modes of argument that will be appropriate to the problems we're trying to solve. And this is one of them. Uh, uh, we treat lives as arguments. And I think the upshot of this one, besides can't have life projects, don't do it that way, don't, right? Um, is we need to pivot away um, from the very, very tightly wired life and ask what the role is, what the cognitive function can be of the concept of meaning of life in a life that's much more loosely organized. And that, I think, will be the next step. Hmm. So, so then I, I take it then, though, that it's not part of the um, the profile of this methodology to render a verdict about any life in particular? Do we get to say at the end of the book that Mill's life was not particularly meaningful or or is is the idea to not seek for uh, that kind of, or that level of assessment? Um, you know, one of the reactions I get, especially from Mill scholars, is when I present Mill's life as the train wreck, they say, um, why do you not like Mill? It's not about that. <laughs> it's not about right. that. Um, uh, the, the exercise is to see the machinery of a view playing out in the life so that you understand how the view works and whether the view is viable or not. Um, I mean, Mill's life is fascinating. And uh, I actually think it's a tragic life and it's a remarkable life and it's a wonderful life. But the philosophical objective is not to say any of those things. It's to see uh, what has to happen uh, when somebody tries to make their life into one giant enormous project. Um, and that will allow us to have a view about whether that's any a conception of the meaning of life that makes sense. And it's not that, and I guess I can give this, I don't want you know to do too many spoilers, but here's maybe uh, one that I can kind of drop on the table to maybe, and we can leave it there. It's not that you look at the project life and you stand back and you say, oh, you could do this, but it's a really bad idea. It turns out you actually can't do it. Right, and we'll, we'll just to keep it as a spoiler. <laughs> yeah, the um, the argument there is a kind of dilemma that you know you, you the it buried within the very attempt, the earnest attempt to do it that way, you know, lies um, sort of two prongs, neither of which is going to um, uh, allow for the project's uh, proper um, completion. Is that is is that fair? That's fair. Here's a here's a different way to say this. You know, yeah. in the traditional methodology, you're invited to imagine something, say a life lived a certain way, um, and then you have a reaction to it. And people always say the imagining is easy. It turns out 
that when you try to imagine this life, it turns out to be literally unimaginable. <laughs> well, um, Vlaj, um, what's your next project? How's that? Well, uh, so I want to keep thinking about the meaning of life. And as I suggested, I want to think about it, uh, what it would look like if the life was more loosely organized. And I want to do it by looking at particular, a particular life. And my candidate for that right now is Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, whose life was incohate and disorganized famously, right? Um, um, and a royal mess, but also, uh, 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 like Mills, uh, full of accomplishments and spectacular achievements. And um, uh, yeah, so stay tuned. Well, that sounds, uh, that sounds fabulous. Uh, and uh, I will keep an eye out for it. Um, uh, and uh, I just want to re- tell our listeners that, um, you know, the book you've written is, is, I mean, it, uh, is really deeply uh, intriguing um, uh, for all kinds of reasons. Um, not only um, did I learn a lot about Mill and particularly um, about some of the aspects of Mill's view that um, I hadn't um, previously studied with with such great care, um, but also uh, just the way in which the the biography and the um, the philosophical development is sort of woven together by you is really. Um, uh, uh, that's an achievement in itself. I mean, independent of um, uh, the first order philosophizing uh, that this is all um, constitutive of and in the service of. So, um, Lige, I want to thank you uh, for taking the time today uh, to talk to me about your book. And thank you for having me. No problem at all. Um, And thank you, listeners, uh, for joining us today on New Books and Philosophy. We've been discussing Elijah Milgram's new book. It's titled John Stuart Mill and the Meaning of Life. It's newly published by Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books and Philosophy, and bye for now. <laughs>